That was wonderful. Thank you so much, Bev and the choir and the team. Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ Church. We're coming up on Christmas season. Are you ready? We better pray, huh? Let's do that together this morning. Father, we approach your throne of grace now and ask that your spirit might come to continue to be among us. Your church truly is the the buttress, the foundation, the support of the truth. The truth that you sent your son into this world to atone for sin and to find lost ones like me and bring them home. Father, will you open up your word now? Bless me as I preach and bless my friends as they hear what the Spirit says to the church this day. Amen. Have you ever noticed how happily married people start to look like each other? (laughs) Unhappily married people have a tendency not to look like each other. But happily married people over time tend to uh, look the same and smell the same and and that's, that's an improvement in many instances. You know, those rough edges are worn off, the uh, uh, some are worn down, and that too helps. Susie and I uh, sometimes will dress, you know, and we'll, we'll be in matching colors entirely by coincidence. And I'll, I'll come out and, you know, we'll, we'll just be totally in sync. And, and she hates this, by the way. And, uh, and, uh, and I'll, I'll say, twinsies! You know, oh, she gets so frustrated. I think even uh, sometimes when we, when we have pets, we, uh, we begin to, to look like our pets. Uh, our pets begin to look like us, and this too sometimes is an improvement. Um, you know, the horse, the dog, in my case, the middle-aged Labrador, uh, not very bright. Um, he isn't, uh, reflecting me more and more, uh, you know, but loyal. There's a vague memory of some sort of athleticism back in there. And uh, anyway, even those, uh, those boys that have pets in their awkward teenage years, you know, when they're dealing with, with acne and such, they, uh, they, they look a little like their pet iguana, you know. So we, we, we begin to uh, resemble who we belong to. And that's the point. There really is a theological point in this somewhere, and that's it. It describes a process, really, and, and, and here it is. Are you, are you ready for it? Who you are, what you become, and how you behave is shaped by what you behold. And what you behold is controlled, at least in part, by where you belong and who you belong to and who belongs to you. So belonging and beholding shapes being and behavior. We don't act contrary to our nature. As Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He said what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And it's this that defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander, Covetous, greed, the rest of it flows out of who we are. This is what defiles a person, says Jesus. 
Back to our thesis. So, who you are at the heart level is who you become. And this deeply influences how you behave. Your heart is shaped by what you behold. And you behold what you belong to, what you're a part of. What you belong to largely shapes and fashions and controls what you, what you behold. And so we come to this text today, and let's listen afresh to it, and we see this process of, of beholding and, and, and becoming. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, says the Apostle Paul. He's, he's writing, he could be delayed, he, he may experience some, some bad weather, who knows, but he's, he's hoping not to be delayed. But he says in verse 15, if, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's why I'm writing this letter. This is the point or the purpose of the entire epistle of 1 Timothy. How one ought to behave in the household of God. And then he describes that household with some very, very important words. He says, this household of God is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, he says, we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then this little poem, or perhaps it's a hymn or a a song of some kind, maybe even a chant, we don't really know. He says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations... Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. From this text, we are reminded that God's gift to us of his son is designed for us not to experience alone, not to experience in isolation. It's actually an invitation to community. It's not a personal legal transaction of of transferring your guilt to an unblemished sacrifice and and merely getting a a monthly reminder at communion that your account with all of its debt has has been paid without any contribution on your part, paid up in full. It's more than that. The gift of God's Son is is not just an individual ransom or private payment. And the church is not like a drive-by bank where you deposit and, 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 and pick up the exchange. God gives us the precious gift of his son, and he calls us into something that is holy and precious and good. And friends, listen, it's eternal. It's the church. It's the church. He calls us into relationship with himself in what is described in this text as his household. Now, once we're in the family, we begin to take on this family resemblance. We begin to resemble what we belong to. We learn the traditions. We do life together. We belong. We behold. We become. And this then shapes our hearts for worship and for service. So he says how we ought to behave in the household of God. And this, of course, is defined and described by Scripture. 
The truth of Scripture shapes how we ought to behave in the household of God. And this profoundly shapes the heart as we belong and, and as we behold together. We, we belong, we behold, we behave. Now, there are three phrases Paul uses to describe this gift, and it is a gift, of transforming faith in the community of God's people gathered together, the church. First, he describes it as a household. Notice that he doesn't use the word community, a word that is uh, very popular these days. He says, I want to come to you if I'm delayed. I'll get there somehow, I hope. But if I get delayed, I want you to know how to behave in this household of God. To call the church community is a popular expression, but but notice here he uses a very family-oriented word, a concrete word, not an abstraction, a concrete word, a household. He calls the church the household of God. The living God, tapping into all of the expressions of that that phrase, the living God, from Genesis forward. What a glorious gift is the church to you and to me. To be called out of darkness into his glorious light, to be brought into right relationship with the resurrected Christ, and to be brought into the household of God, the family of God. Notice first that it's God's church. He's not an absentee father. He's he's not wound this thing up and standing back and watching it all wound down. He is present in the church. In God's house, all of his kids have equal dignity. All of his kids have value. All of his children have worth. Both superstars and CEOs, popes and presidents, uh, busboys and beggars, In God's household, all submit to the Father because he is the king. He is the master. He is the one who is the head of the household, the head of the body, and all of us together are connected to God through Christ. And therefore, he has authority over all in his church. In God's house, the Father expects his kids to love one another. You enter into God's house through God's love, and Father wants his kids to reflect that love one to another, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill, listen, so fulfill the law of Christ as we love one another that flows up out of our hearts into the transforming process of being God's people together. Secondly, he describes this church as the church of the living God. This God dwells among his people. Yes, he's in charge, but he's also present. He is here. That's why every Sunday when we gather, we give a a form of invocation, not so much that that we make God show up. No, it's it's more of an appeal, a prayer, a petition that God's special presence, his manifest presence, might come among us. He's here with us always and everywhere. For in him we live and move and have our being. But on Sunday morning, when we gather together, we become, as it were, the living stones together of the temple of God, and God, by his Spirit, is among us. Do you believe that this morning? The living God dwells among his people. 
One of my heroes, the great Anglican John Stott, said in our worship, we bow down before the living God. Through the reading and exposition of his word, we hear his voice addressing us. We meet him at his table when we take communion together. And when he makes himself known to us through the breaking of bread, and in our fellowship we love each other as he has loved us. And our witness then becomes bolder, more urgent. Indeed, unbelievers come and they see that and they may confess that God is really among you. The church of the living God. He's a king with full authority, but he's present among us even today. Doesn't depend on whether we feel him or not. God loves his church, and he loves to gather with his people. He loves to speak to us through his word, and he enjoys hearing us tell him how wonderful he is. It is the church of the living God. Now, to be a part of this family, to begin growing in this family resemblance, being slowly, over time, being more and more conformed to the image and likeness of of God's Son, which is what we are doing in this life, being readied for heaven, a person must first be admitted into God's household. And the only way to get into God's household is by being born. You can't buy your way in. To get into God's household and to become a member of God's family, you have to be called, you have to be invited, just as you are, without one plea. O Lamb of God, take all of me. That's that's how we come in. We are born first, physically, and then born spiritually, born from above. Born again, a a twice-born person. And it's through that miracle of new life that we become a member of God's wonderful household. And and he adopts us, so to speak, right into to be a co-heir with his dear son. When you hear his call and you come home, he gives you a a wild assortment of brothers and sisters. Just, Just look around. Just take a moment and look around right now. Even in this fairly homogenous church that we have here, we've got a lot of very interesting people here this morning. Just look around at yourselves. Go ahead. Loosen up a little bit. Go ahead and look around. Smile at one another. There you go. We have a wild assortment of brothers and sisters, do we not? This is called the church. You know, I've been all over the world, not as much as I would like. I'd I'd love to to do nothing but travel if I had my way, but God, God sees fit to chain me to this pulpit, and that's a good thing for me. But when I've had the opportunity to travel... I've just loved the fellowship that I've had with God's people all over the world. It's the most amazing family to be a part of. Whether you're in Kenya or Sudan or Mexico or Brazil or Italy or that bizarre and strange foreign land of Texas, <laughs> there are fellow members of the household of God that, that I feel connected to. I have relatives everywhere. How about you? I'm part of the most amazing household. And it stretches back 20 centuries and has grown so huge that no government can control it. 
You know, no force on the earth can control my family because my king is expanding his household all over the globe. And he's going to gather into his glorious presence a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and I get to be a part of it. And so do you. What a great and glorious gift is the church, the people of God. False teachers, as Paul's addressing that in in 1 Timothy, cannot ultimately stop that. Because it's the church of the living God. He's the master of this huge and wonderful and crazy variety. This heavenly house, this wonderful family that we are part of. Now, I, I rejoice at the thought of someday getting to know many members of the family that I don't know. We get to spend eternity in, 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 in heaven together, exploring what it means to be in union with God by the Spirit through Christ together. What a glorious family reunion that's going to be. Now, I know family times at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we are in that season, can sometimes be painful. I get that. But we have a heavenly home that we are being drawn to. Jesus himself said in John 14, don't be troubled. Don't be so bugged all the time. You trust God, now trust me. There are many rooms in Father's house. And I'm going to prepare a home for you, a place for you, a household for you. If this were not so, I'd tell you plainly. I wouldn't lie to you. When everything is ready, I'll come back and I'll get you. So that you can be always with me in Papa's house and always be where I am. The family together without this curse and stain of sin. What a glorious future the people of God have. Don't you want to be a part of that family? Don't you want to belong to that household of God? To be part of what God is doing. Everything else is going to be busted up and fall away and and decay and atrophy. But God will renew his creation and his church will be part of that great renewal. Man, do I look forward to it and I know you do too. The third thing Paul says about the church is that it it exists in part, not in full, but certainly uh, a a main job description for any local church and, and the church globally is to protect and promote the truth. The church of the living God, Paul says, is the pillar, the buttress. Some translations say the the foundation of the truth. I prefer buttress. I think it's a a better Greek translation uh, for this reason. I believe that a buttress sort of supports and uh, and holds the truth together. It, It, as John Stott says, lifts high the truth. It supports, along with the pillars, the truth. The church is not the foundation of the truth in this respect. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. But the church certainly is a support of the truth, the buttress of the truth. And the living God supports his church in a living way. And so the church is the guardian of the truth, the protector of the truth, the communicator of the gospel in the world. And the living God is the guardian and the protector of the church. 
There's that symbiotic relationship, a living God in a living church guarding, supporting, and communicating the truth. Surely Paul had in mind when he used this phrase, one of the seven wonders of the world at Ephesus, the the temple of of Artemis had 100 ionic columns. It was a really big deal, 60 feet high. The roof was marble, shining, massively dominating the horizon there in Ephesus. And he's writing to Timothy who is in Ephesus. And Paul is saying that the church, the people of God, the, the living family of God's household are like those pillars that hold the truth aloft for all the world to see. What an incredible responsibility for us to own together. John Calvin says it's a very heavy responsibility that rests on pastors who've been entrusted with the safekeeping of this priceless treasure, the truth. And many have been asked to die for the truth. Hugh Latimer, one of the early martyrs for the Anglican Church in England, martyred at Oxford on October 16, 1555. He says to his friend, also to be martyred, Master Ridley, be of good cheer and play the man, for we shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust by God's grace shall never be put out. And the truth blazed on. Or think of Thomas Cramner struggling with trying to get out of this fate that seemed to await him of of giving his very life for the church, the foundation, the buttress, the pillar of truth. He said five times he, he wrote a letter of submission to the Pope and to the Roman Catholic doctrines and four times he tore it up. In the end, says his biographer, he submitted However, Queen Mary was unwilling to believe that the submission was sincere and he was ordered to be burned at Oxford on March 21st, 1556, one year after Latimer and Ridley. At the very end, he repudiated his final letter of submission and announced that he died a Protestant, an evangelical Protestant. He said, I have sinned in that I signed with my hand what I did not believe with my heart, And when the flames are lit, this hand shall be the first to burn. When the fire was lit around his feet, he leaned forward and held his right hand in the fire until it was charred to a stump. And aside from this, he he did not speak or move, except that once he raised his left hand to wipe the sweat from his brow. What a testimony. Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer were were willing to die for the true church. This true church that was designed by the living God to be a bastion of truth. They were convinced that as Paul says here, the church supports, guards, protects, and proclaims the truth of the living God. Church matters, friend. Church matters a lot. I've had the great privilege to be among many of the parachurch organizations here in the city of Pittsburgh. Uh, being the new rector of, of Christ Church uh, has wonderful opportunities for me to, to sort of uh, network with many ministries in the city. 
I've met with seminary presidents and heads of ministries and uh, all kinds of wonderful leaders. But still in my heart, still in my heart, the first place for me is the church. I love mission agencies. I love our pro-life parachurch organizations. I was just this week at an amazing banquet for the Urban Impact Foundation. It was so wonderful. And yet for me, the priority for my life and, and my time and my ministry is God's holy church, the pillar, the foundation of truth. And the church absolutely must be infused with truth because, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 20, it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. Truth matters. It needs guarded. There is that symbiotic relationship of the church guarding and communicating gospel truth in the world, and we need godly leaders so this message is not discredited. Pray for the leaders of the church. It's sustained through dependence on God and in prayer. It must focus on God's mission. It must communicate God's message. The question for some of us today, some young people in particular, are you willing to take this call, and this is a call, by the way, to Christ's church seriously. If you want authentic Christ-likeness, you must be born of the Spirit, adopted into the family, and, and finally, once we're adopted into the family, we must maintain a, a, a relationship, a living in God's household. The living God there shapes our hearts for service in that context. John Piper, great preacher, Another one of my heroes, I have my John heroes, John Stott and John Piper. The work of the Holy Spirit, Piper says, in in changing us is, is not to work directly on our bad habits, but to make us admire, listen, to make us admire Jesus Christ so much that sinful habits feel foreign and distasteful. We admire Jesus Christ. We behold him so much as we belong together in the church. And we admire him so much that those sinful habits that hold us back to conformity to the image and likeness of Christ feel foreign and distasteful more and more. Paul quotes a beautiful worship song. In addition to being a a wise, well-traveled, educated rabbi, he has encountered this living God. He's become his messenger. He's become his ambassador. And so under the, the anointing, the unction of the Holy Spirit, he can say this wonderful, beautiful, in 18 words in Greek, this beautiful creedal confession. And we finish with that today. He says, great, we confess, is this mystery of godliness, this mystery. He says this to a church that's filled with mystery cults all around it. You know sort of what that might be like if you were ever in a sorority or a fraternity, there was a a secret handshake and all that mumbo-jumbo to get into the secret organization. Susie and I were tapped to be part of an organization when we were in college that uh, that the, the president of the college was a part of and And it was all a bunch of, honestly, a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, but it was kind of this skull-and-crossbones secret society, you know? 
When John F. Kennedy came to the campus years ago, they, they made him an honorary member. And at the halftime of the football game, we would parade with our, our jackets on backwards across the field, and everybody would go, oh, there goes that secret society, that mysterious secret society. Of course, it was all nonsense. But people longed to know what was going on in that, that you know, that, that secret society. Well, Paul uses that very kind of word. It's not a, a mystery that needs to be solved like a British murder mystery. No, it's a, it's a mystery that is now revealed in Christ. It's now open and plain to the eyes of faith. And it's this. He, this mystery, hidden in ages past, is manifested in the flesh and that's what Christmas is all about. God come into flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, seen by angels at his birth, strengthened by angels when he was tempted, strengthened by angels when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he ascended, in the book of Acts, we, we hear that, that angels appeared then too. And we know that when he returns, he will come with a great company of the heavenly host. Warrior angels and angels of, of worship and praise. He was seen by those angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. Taken up in glory. Truth causes Paul to praise. And so he can write this confession, this this song, three couplets. It seems to contrast flesh and spirit, angels and nation, world and glory. Great is this, this mystery manifested in the flesh. Christ's work accomplished. Christ's work finished as he's vindicated, risen from the dead. No mention of the crucifixion, and yet there is certainly implied in this statement that Christ atoned for our sin and was risen from the dead as we proclaimed this morning as we read the Nicene Creed. He's seen by angels. The advance of the church is, is happening. It's ongoing. Angels and nations, spiritual people, angels, spiritual beings of some kind, and the rest of us who know God's grace. His saving work is, is made known increasingly to, to every nation and tribe. And Christ's work is received. It's believed on in the world. And there we have it. Paul, apostle, messenger of God, teaches us that we ought to, we ought to behave in God's household. This is why I'm writing, he says. But that behaving is directly connected, first, to what household you're in. God's house, God's family, or the world's. Secondly, it's what we behold together. And thirdly, it's what we build. Let's pray. Father, our earnest prayer today is that you are to return. You've reminded them how important being a part of your household is and, and what a blessing it is and 
And so, my prayer, Lord, as we examine our hearts and confess our sin before we take Holy Communion, my prayer, Father, is that you would build your church as you promised through your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I will build my church, I'll build my household, my family, and the gates of hell will never, ever triumph against it. Amen.